0: morning everyone welcome to restoration my name is john i'm one of the pastors here it's great to be with you all on all Hallows eve which is the night before all saints day which is why we celebrate uh it's always i always use this opportunity as a soapbox to remind people that halloween is a medieval christian celebration and the reason that we do it is we celebrate jesus's victory over death and evil So when we wear costumes, which was an early tradition, it's to mock Satan. It was to mock sin and evil that we have won victory over in Jesus. So remember that as you celebrate tonight and dress up and go out and do all those things. It's a reminder of Jesus' victory over sin and death. So welcome this morning on Reformation Sunday and All Hallows Eve if you've been with us uh, the last couple months, we've been in a series on the book of First Samuel, and we're continuing in that this morning. Uh, Dan took us through chapter fourteen last week, where we be, where we continued to see problems with Saul as the king. Saul is a strong leader; he's militarily successful, wins these great victories. But we saw last week that unlike his son, Jonathan, who trusted in God, Saul seems to be accomplishing all these great things without relying on God as the true king. And this is becoming a pattern in Saul's life. It's already resulted in God rejecting Saul's descendants from being the kings after him. And in chapter 15, it goes a step further. God is going to reject Saul himself as the king of Israel. Certainly, we're going to talk about Saul this morning, but I want our focus actually to be on the true king, God, and to ask the question, what does this story reveal about God? What does this story tell us about his character? What do we learn about God and his heart from our chapter? So we're going to be in chapter 15. It is on page 237, if you have the Bible in the pew. But as you turn there, we're going to get into verse uh, 1, and I'll go ahead and read the first six verses, and then we'll pause and talk for a few minutes. Verse 1 of chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Our chapter begins with these two groups of people, the Amalekites and the Kenites. And you see from verse 2 that there's some kind of history here that we might need To know, God makes mention in his command to Saul about the exodus from Israel. So a little bit of historical context here is going to be important for us. Way back in Exodus chapter 17, somewhere between three and 400 years before our story this morning, the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt. They're freed by God and they are on their way to the promised land. And we're told in chapter 17 of Exodus that they're in the desert, they're exhausted, they're hungry, they're tired, and they're attacked by this king, Amalek, and his people. With God's help, they're able to defeat the Amalekites. You may remember the story of Moses holding the staff up above his head for victory. They're able to defeat the Amalekites, but God promises that because of this attack one day, he's going to wipe out King Amalek and his people. Now a chapter later, Exodus 18, we're introduced to the Kenites through Moses' uncle, who we're later told is a Kenite. And the Israelites are treated kindly by this group, the Kenites, as they're in the wilderness. So hundreds of years later, We don't necessarily know why, but the Kenites are either living with or somewhere in close proximity to the Amalekites. And so Saul comes and offers them the opportunity to escape this battle because of the kindness that they showed to God's people hundreds of years before. So these two groups, the Amalekites and the Kenites, two groups that are not part of God's covenant people but two groups that their treatment of gives a picture of something about God's character. Yes, he is going to destroy the Amalekites because of their evil, but remember that he's waited three to four hundred years to do that. He's been immensely patient with the Amalekites. And this is what we see over and over again in the Old Testament. We see it with the Kenites in this story, that God isn't just simply out to destroy every non-Israelite that exists. Look at the non-Israelites in Jesus' genealogy. Rahab is in the city of Jericho. God commands that Jericho be destroyed. Rahab helps Israel, turns to follow the God of Israel, and ends up in Jesus' genealogy. Rahab, or excuse me, Ruth, A Moabite, one of the enemies of God's people. Yet she comes with her mother-in-law to live in Israel, follows Israel's God, and is in Jesus' genealogy. And now the Kenites, who helped God's people along their way, coming out of Egypt. Over and over again, God seems to offer mercy to people who are outside of his covenant promises. And that's the first thing we learned this morning, is that God's heart is a heart of mercy. And Israel itself was supposed to be an extension of that mercy. God had told Abraham, whoever blesses you will be blessed. God's goal in choosing Israel was not just to say this one nation and no one else. It was that through Israel, Mercy and blessing might go out to all the nations. So We see that God has a heart of mercy. But we also have to talk about the Amalekites. God has given them hundreds of years of mercy. He's delayed their destruction over and over again. But in their story, we see that God is also a God of justice. Because we get no... We get no indication that the Amalekites have actually changed in all these hundreds of years. In Exodus, they attacked Israel in the wilderness. Later in the book of Numbers, they attack Israel again as they try to enter the promised land. Throughout the book of Judges... The Amalekites are seen joining up with other groups of people to try to attack Israel. And then in our chapter, verse 18, they're called sinners. And in verse 33, it says about their king that his sword has made women childless. So we don't have any indication that the Amalekites have changed. Everything seems to point to the fact that they continue to be an evil people. An evil people set on destroying God's people. And so if God is a God of justice, then what does justice look like for the Amalekites? Well, We have to understand that true justice does entail judgment and destruction. Now those are things that we don't normally like to talk about. But one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, says that if God doesn't ultimately judge and destroy those who hurt and oppress his people, Then, what ultimate hope do we have? And I want to acknowledge that as we read this passage, some of you might be struggling with some of this, verse three, maybe in particular. You understand the need for justice, but that verse that says, Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, seems overly harsh. So let me offer a quick response to what is a valid concern. First of all, it is harsh in some respects. The Bible does not sanitize stories for us. The Bible doesn't hesitate to call things evil and to demand the extreme destruction of evil things. But I want to also recognize that there is some cultural things at play here that might be helpful for us first of all the language and the kind of words that are used in this passage are what are commonly called ancient near east exaggeration rhetoric the most similar thing we might think of is uh, some of the ways that we describe uh, sports victories sometimes if your team defeats another team you might say man we destroyed them right we wiped them out we crushed them Right? Language like that's common in our sports vernacular. Well, in ancient Near East literature, we see that same kind of language used about warfare. So you'll see things like devote to destruction all that they have. Right? And as we've studied ancient Near East literature, we know that those descriptions like kill all the men, women, children, animals actually only usually involved defeating the combatants not killing indiscriminately every single person as an example in our story as we continue through the chapter we see that Saul is going to say I've defeated and destroyed all the Amalekites except their king yet in a few months in Samuel 1st Samuel chapter 27 1st Samuel chapter 30 in other books of the Bible guess who we run into Amalekites So clearly, Saul did not devote to destruction every single one of them. And that's actually not Saul's, the issue later in this chapter. The issue isn't God saying to Saul, you didn't devote all the people to destruction. He's actually angry that Saul kept some of the spoils of war for himself and for the people. So these phrases in the Old Testament, like devote them to destruction or kill them all, we just want you to see that they're a lot more nuanced than the surface reading. Not to mention what we said earlier, that God has been patient with the Amalekites for 400 years for them to repent of their attacks and their evil against Israel, and they have yet to do so. We know that God's heart is mercy because we see it with the Kenites, who he allows to escape. God is always open to repentance. God is always ready to offer mercy. But we need a God who's just enough to also act against evil. Because we live in a world where evil things happen. We live in a world where there are evil people. And so as Christians, we have to believe that God is going to destroy and stop evil. He's going to deliver us, his people, from evil, That's our longing. That's our hope as Christians. So we have to have a God who hates evil and wants to get rid of it. We have to have a God who's just. Otherwise, what are we doing? Paul says that as Christians, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christians should be pitied because they have no hope. He says that because Jesus rose from the dead to defeat evil and stop it. And so if Jesus died but didn't rise from the dead, then evil still wins. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is proof that God is out to stop evil. So we do have hope. But in my experience, we don't do a very good job of understanding God's heart of mercy and justice. Most of the time, we treat God the way my kids treat me sometimes. When they do something wrong, they're very quick to cry out for mercy. But when something's done wrong to them, they are equally quick to cry out for justice. Now, the desire for mercy justice in them is not wrong the question is what's happening in their hearts when they cry out when they ask for mercy is it truly because they're sorrowful for their sin or do they just want to avoid punishment when they ask for justice against their offender Is it because they understand the seriousness of sin and they want evil to be stopped? Or is it because they want retribution? And when we begin to reflect on that, we also begin to realize that we aren't just talking about the way our kids behave. Because I begin to realize this is my own heart. And I think this is your heart, too. When you sin, how easy is it to call out for mercy? But when you're sinned against, how easy is it to call out for justice? Where are you tempted to treat sin too lightly in your own life, and so you miss the need for God's justice? Or where do you leave no room for mercy, and you demand punishment for every offense against you? Think about not just you, think about our broader culture. There was a long time and has been a long time in our culture where we underestimated or we ignored abuse and injustice even while people were crying out that injustice was happening. Now we begin to treat some of those things in our culture more seriously. That's a positive. But at the same time, we've also begun to leave no place for mercy. You hold a certain position or opinion or you disagree with the wrong person or the wrong group, you're immediately canceled and shamed. We've got to reclaim a correct understanding of God's heart for justice and for mercy if we want to operate in this world as followers of Jesus. And that was part of Saul's problem, who we're about to get to. Saul did not understand God's mercy and God's justice. And so as we read the rest of this chapter in just a moment, we're going to look at this particular interaction with Samuel and Saul and God as a case study for what happens when we don't understand God's heart of mercy and justice. So let's read the rest of the chapter, picking up in verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good excuse me, all that was good, it would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold he has set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams." For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn your kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past." And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibba of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So as I said, this picture of Saul here serves as a case study of what it looks like to not see God's heart of mercy and justice. And this is what we mean by that. Remember that the chapter began with mercy. It began with Samuel coming to Saul, reminding him Saul, it was the Lord who anointed you. It's the Lord who's the king. It's the Lord who you need to listen to. God is mercifully giving Saul another opportunity after all these chapters to trust and obey his word. Even after Saul has shown this consistent pattern of trusting only in himself, only of half-heartedly listening to what God has to say, God's heart of mercy continues to pursue Saul offering him his word over and over again again here giving him the opportunity to trust and obey God but Saul does not understand the mercy of God nor does he understand the justice of God instead of seeing this as an opportunity to trust God once again Saul views this as an opportunity to benefit himself and his own position Verse 9 says that he and the people spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and they spared the best of the animals. That's clearly against what God commanded them to do. Why would Saul do that? Why would Saul think that he could get away with directly violating this word that he had just received from God? I think the answer is Saul doesn't really understand the justice of God, either. He doesn't understand how serious a thing it is to break God's commandments. Saul has sinned against God, but when he's confronted by Samuel about that sin, he's dismissive of it. The first thing he does is he blames the people. Even though verse 9 says that it was Saul and the people that spared Agag and took the animals. Verses 15 and 21, Saul tells Samuel, oh, well, the, it was the people who, who did that. The people took these spoils of war. When Samuel lays out the consequences of disobedience, he says, you're no longer going to be the king. He keeps blaming the people. Verse 24, well, I did it because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. He refuses to take ownership Of his own sin. He refuses to recognize how serious it is to break God's commandments. Even when he tries to ask half heartedly for forgiveness, his motivation for that is his own reputation before the people. Look at verse 30. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. He wants to look good in his repentance. Saul has no ability to see the seriousness of his own sin and therefore the seriousness of God's justice. He thinks he can gain access to God's mercy by blame shifting, by downplaying his sin. But God's mercy never downplays the seriousness of sin. And his justice never gives way to cheap mercy. See, God is serious about mercy and he's serious about justice. Saul is serious about neither. And this has been Saul's problem from the beginning. This has never been about Saul simply choosing to disobey God, it's about why he chooses to disobey God. It's been about Saul misunderstanding who God really is as the king. And we see that in Samuel's response to Saul in verse 22. He says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? That's a sarcastic question. Samuel's saying to Saul, you don't understand what God is about. You don't get God's heart at all. We're we're very close to being introduced to David. And David is remembered as being Israel's greatest king. He's remembered as being Israel's greatest king because he never disobeyed, right? No. David massively disobeys. He has some serious, significant sin. We're told in Scripture that David is Israel's greatest king because he was a man after God's own heart in recognizing his own sin and in the way he repented. Saul does not understand God's heart like that. And that's what's led to his downfall. He does not understand the seriousness of his sin in the face of God's mercy, and justice. And that needs to be the application for us this morning. Do we understand God's heart? Do we recognize the way in which God's mercy and judgment, excuse me, justice, work themselves out in our hearts and in the real world? If you struggle with that, there's good news. God's given us his word. And God's word, which is one of the main topics of this story that we didn't really get to delve into deeply over and over again. God's word came. God's word came. He disobeyed God's word. God's word came. Over and over again, God's word is pointed to in this chapter and throughout scripture as the way to understand God's heart. If you want to know God's heart, he gives glimpses of his heart and his character through these types of stories. So are you spending time in God's Word? Are you here on Sunday mornings learning more deeply about God's character? We have a Bible reading plan. We have men's and women's Bible studies. We have discipleship relationships. We create these things so that you can be exposed to and in God's Word so that you can have access to it. Not so you can check a religious box off like Saul tries to do with the animal sacrifices but so that you can begin to understand more clearly God's heart and that that would then inform the way that you live in this world as part of his covenant people. So where does that leave us? We need to understand God's heart of mercy and justice more clearly through his word. But is that all we're missing? We're just missing a better understanding just missing more knowledge we need to read more of the bible we need to read more stories like this and then things will click well as you know if you come here often enough that's not the ultimate answer yes reading god's word is invaluable desiring to know god deeper and deeper who he is what his heart's about what his character's about that's invaluable But we end this morning where we always end. And that's with Jesus. Saul didn't simply need to know more about God. He needed a new heart. And that heart would only come by looking forward to the greater king who was actually the ruler of Israel and the ruler of Saul. That's what David did that made him Israel's greatest king. He looked forward to King Jesus. And we know that because you can read the Psalms and see all over the place, David, in good times and bad, looking forward to the greater king to come. Jesus is God's word, which we said earlier reveals God to us, Shows us who he is. Jesus is God's word made flesh. He's the living word. Come to show us what God is like. And at the cross, where Jesus died, we see God's mercy and justice coming together and meeting. Because it's in his mercy that God gave his only son. And he gave his only son to die to fulfill his justice, to take on the punishment of death and separation from God. What Jesus did in his death on the cross was extend mercy to us who deserved God's justice, took that justice on himself that he didn't deserve so that we could have new hearts. The work of Jesus on the cross that's then given to us as our righteousness. It makes us alive with Jesus when he rises from the dead, gives us his spirit, and that is the only thing that then allows us to truly know and experience God's heart of mercy and justice. So this morning, don't come away just thinking, well, I just, I need to read more. I need to learn more about God, and then everything will be fine. Come away with a greater love for king jesus who met and fulfilled everything that you and i cannot that makes us people after god's own heart let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you that in your word we see your character but more than that we thank you for jesus who was your word made flesh He showed us your heart of mercy and he showed us your heart of justice that gives us hope that we're not going to suffer the punishment of our own sins but that also evil doesn't win help us to rely and trust on you in your name we pray amen